Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 729 of the Juicebox Podcast. On today's podcast, I'll be speaking with Dr. Harbison. She's here to tell us a little bit about what it's like to be an endocrinologist to a mostly Hispanic population. And she's going to talk a little bit about the Dexcom G6 app and how it now has Spanish language capabilities. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you have type 1 diabetes or are the caregiver of someone with type 1, please go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. Join the registry, complete the survey. When you complete that survey, you'll be helping people with type 1 diabetes, helping yourself, and supporting the Juicebox podcast. t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. El medidor continuo de glucosa Dexcom G6 está disponible ahora en español en la aplicación Dexcom G6 en tanto en el iPhone como en el Android. Por favor, descarguenlo y cambien su idioma a español. This episode of the Juicebox podcast is sponsored by Touched by Type 1. Go to touchedbytype1.org and find them on Facebook and Instagram. They're a wonderful organization doing great things for people with type 1 diabetes, and they have an event coming up in August in Orlando that I'm going to be speaking at. You can also learn more about that at touchedbytype1.org. The podcast is also sponsored by InPen from Medtronic Diabetes. If you're looking for an insulin pen that will give you some of the functionality that an insulin pump does, go to InPenToday.com. Hi, Scott. My name is Rocio Harbison. I am an endocrinologist in Houston, Texas. I've been practicing endocrinology for the past 12 years, and I have a large Hispanic population, given that Texas is uh, diverse and a large population of Hispanics, and I speak Spanish. I tend to have a large population of Hispanics in my in my practice. What What drew you to the profession? So it's very interesting. When they ask me this question, I go back and forth into deciding what made me decide into endocrinology. And really, I am an endocrine patient. I do not have diabetes, but I was diagnosed with an endocrinological condition when I was a child. And I'm sure that that played a big role in my decision. Sure. Did you have good doctors as a kid or did you just feel comfortable with them or... I did. Yeah. I had a really good uh, pediatric endocrinology, and then I followed with primary care for some time. Um, knowing my own condition is very easy, so I don't tend to follow as often. Once a year is pretty good because mm-hmm. I've been stable for many, many years. But it, it, it's a different perspective when you have been a patient yourself uh, and treating your own patients with similar conditions. Yes. You're able to identify with them, to give them recommendations. And if you're able to disclose as a physician some of the conditions that you have, it almost seems like you have a better rapport with your patients. They feel like you're truly understanding their medical conditions. Yeah. And so let me just ask you truthfully, does it just feel like that or is it actually true? Do you, do you know what I mean? 
I, I really think that it's true when they're speaking to me and they're telling me their symptoms. I'm like, yes, been there, done that. I totally get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it just makes that communication with our patients in a way a little bit easier. I don't think that we necessarily obviously need to experience a medical condition to be able to treat our patients. But in, in a way, uh, particularly when the symptoms tend to be pretty vague mm-hmm. in general, it is kind of good for our patients sometimes to hear them that we truly get what they're saying. Right. So how much of your practice do you think is diabetes? It's probably a good 60%. Okay. Mostly type 1? Mostly, mostly type 2s. Two. Mostly type 2s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you find... How do you find, uh, what's the question I want to ask? So I I know you don't know me, but I've had over a thousand conversations with people who use insulin and that, that have been recorded and many more like privately. And I always kind of contend that type 2 diabetes does not feel immediately emergent as, as the way type 1 does. Do you think that's one of the reasons why type 1s are quicker- I guess, generally speaking, to focus in on what they need to do? Or do you not find that? Am I just making things up? No, you are absolutely correct. Uh, Our patients with type 2 diabetes, they have a different disease process, basically, a different pathophysiology. So many of them are still producing enough insulin to not feel all the symptoms. And it tends to be this silent disease, Mm -hmm. Uh, particularly... When you have not gone to the doctor for many years, you have not been screened. So who knows when you get checked and have a new diagnosis of diabetes, how long you have truly had the diabetes. That's why we always encourage our patients to at least get that yearly checkup with uh, their primary care physicians. So yes, diabetes type 2 tends to be silent. In type 1, you do require insulin. And for that reason, symptoms will happen early on. Which sort of forces you to... I don't embrace is the wrong word, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little, it's Friday morning, doctor. I'm a little at a loss <laughs> for the, for the word, but, but I think it uh, makes them jump in maybe more. Do, do you know what I mean? More. Um, I don't know what it is. I want to say exactly. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why type twos end up not seeming as engaged with their, with the disease as type ones do. I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out. And how to help them with that. Sure. And, and thank you for asking that question because hopefully we use your platform to educate a lot of your uh, listeners what they could do. Many of them might be parents of a kid with type 1. Maybe we, maybe many have uh, family members with type 1 diabetes, but them themselves may have a high risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And, and like I said, it, it is silent. It is very important to know our family history. I have a very strong family history of type 2 diabetes being Hispanic. Mm -hmm. And I get my regular A1C checks at least once a year to make sure that my glucoses are within range. Um, And and understanding that diabetes type 2 usually is asymptomatic, meaning that they will not have symptoms of high or low blood sugars because they're still producing some insulin. But that doesn't mean that the sugars are within range. I think one of the fears that uh, many people have when they have type 2 diabetes is how much it will impact their life and the quality of life, their uh, daily activities, the food that they like to eat. 
in, in, in a way, it could be put very easily in the back burner. Nobody wants to be diagnosed with a medical condition. And there is a fear of how many medications they will need. There's also a fear of the potential side effects of those medications. There is a fear that sometimes you may, that you could develop a complication that you have seen in a family member. So it, it, it could be quite emotional to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. No, I would imagine. I also think that possibly because of the slow onset, it's just, it's hard to see it happening, right? And then before mm-hmm. you know it, you're sort of buried underneath of it and like those tired feelings or I'm always tired after I eat or something like that. It just, I don't know, you, you just think it's normal after a while. Or culturally, a lot of times what I've seen is that people just expect to get it. And so- they almost don't they almost don't bother guarding against it because they think it's like it's the family curse or something like that. Do you know what I mean by that? Absolutely. Yeah. And there might be uh, the patients where they feel like their family members have been okay. They have not developed any complications. And so they go about their lives thinking that those complications will not happen to them. But remember that we all have different genetics. You have the genetics from mom and the genetics from dad. And if a family member did not develop, thankfully, any complications, that doesn't mean that you as a patient with di- living with diabetes will not. Right. Well, I appreciate you talking about that with me. I'm, I'm always very interested in it. So let me get to type ones. When you when you see, a, do you see mostly adults or children? Adults, I do see a few adolescents that are transitioning to adult endocrinology, uh, but my, most of my patients are adults. What do you think the... What do you think the biggest hurdle is when you're transitioning from from endo to endo, especially from being a child to being an adult? I'm going to make this quick. Go to touchedbytype1.org, click on the Programs tab, scroll down to Annual Conference, and there you'll have everything you need to know about Touched by Type 1's annual conference that I'll be speaking at. It's on Saturday, August 27th at the Lowe's Portofino Bay Hotel at Universal Orlando from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Registration for the conference is open right now at touchedbytype1.org. Just go to the Programs tab, click on Annual Conference, and then the purple button that says Register Now. And the conference is for everyone who has Type 1 diabetes or loves someone who does. So go over now, get yourself a ticket. They're free. That's right. Registration is free. Touched by type1.org. The InPen is a reusable smart insulin pen that uses Bluetooth technology to send dose information to a mobile app. Offering dose calculations and tracking, InPen helps take some of the mental math out of your diabetes management. The link you want is inpentoday.com. Learn all about the InPen and the app at this link. Actually, you can also get started with the Impen at the link, schedule an online healthcare provider visit, learn about how the app works from the dosing calculator to the digital log book and everything in between. You'll see insights from real customers and learn about the support that Impen offers, like 24-hour technical support, hands-on product training, and online educational resources. Maybe the most exciting thing you're going to find at impentoday.com is that it is completely possible that you may pay 
as little as $35 for the M-Pen. Offer is available to people with commercial insurance, terms and conditions apply, but as little as $35. This is worth you finding out about. This is an insulin pen that talks to an app on your phone, and that app is gonna give you access to your current glucose, meal history, dose history, activity log, dose calculator, active insulin remaining, glucose history, and reports. InPenToday.com. InPen requires a prescription and settings from your healthcare provider. You must use proper settings and follow the instructions as directed, or you could experience higher low glucose levels. For more safety information, visit, you guessed it, InPenToday.com. Links to InPen, Touch by Type 1, and all of the sponsors are in the show notes of the audio app that you're using right now, or you can always find them at JuiceBoxPodcast.com. When you click directly on my links, you're supporting the podcast. That That is a very interesting uh, question. I think in adult endocrinology, one of the first steps that I like to take with my patients is making sure that they're taking ownership of their conditions, that they are in charge of filling their prescriptions. And I like to have those visits one-to-one without mom or dad being in the room. Sometimes mom and dad will come in the room initially just to give me the brief uh, background story, making sure that my patient uh, is able to communicate all of that information, the medications that they're on, where they fill the prescriptions, etc. But after that, I really kind of push them to be in charge and control. Many of my patients will be going to college and oftentimes will be doing televisits if they are within the state, going to a college in the state of Texas. Mm. So taking that responsibility, making sure that they are they know exactly when to contact us when they need a prescription refill, uh, not only for their insulin or their supplies, if they are on diabetes technology, but also uh, for all of the other things that they might need, like glucagon, for example, um, what to do in that transition period. Like I said, many of our patients come in and they're already on the way to college. So I don't have much time to get to know them. And, uh, Educate them as well on what could happen when they're transitioning also to college life. Um, so that that makes it a little bit of a challenge. Mm-hmm. I kind of love it because it, I'm pushing them to take control of their diabetes on their own and moving them from mom and the, that dependency sometimes on mom and dad. And, and as you know, having a, a child with diabetes. You want to make sure that your kid is okay. And I'm, I'm a mother of five. I want to make sure that my kids are okay. They will do everything that they're supposed to. So we always kind of want to look over their shoulders and we want to make sure that they're doing what they're supposed to. Yeah. But uh, I try to transition that quickly. Well, so there's this void. So I, I end up interviewing a lot of mid-20s people who've had diabetes as children and then head off to college, like you said, or just sort of go off on their own. And for I, I, in my opinion, for far too many of them, there ends up being this void in the middle where I don't think they realized how much their parents were doing or, mm-hmm. or maybe sometimes how much they didn't understand about what was happening. And then they spend these years in college with just, you know, not great results for their blood sugars. And then they emerge from college and have time to focus on it all of a sudden. And I haven't had one of them on here yet who hasn't expressed some sort of regret for not for not understanding it better as they were going. Now, I think part of it is the age, right? There's that, what do they say? Like people's brains, sure. aren't, brains aren't formed, right? In their early 20s still, like, right? You're still developing. Um, 
But I think it's amazing to have somebody there who understands that. Uh, and I love the idea of you sort of separating the parent from the child in the room once the child's an adult, because I guess you really do get to assess, like, how much do they really know about this and how much have they just been a passenger on the journey so far, right? Yes, and it's always good to have them review with a CDE or dietitian. We are blessed to have one on staff in the office. We're a very small office, only two uh, physicians, and we do have a dietitian on staff. But sometimes you might feel like you know everything about carbohydrates. It's always good to give them a little bit of a different perspective because, as you have probably heard, every year there's a new medication to treat diabetes, particularly type 2. Uh, and then we also have newer and newer technologies. It's, it's a great opportunity to review mm -hmm. with our patients their knowledge. And I will say the one of the most difficult things when you're transitioning from peds to adult endocrine is being able to create that report with the doctor. Mm -hmm. Some of our patients were diagnosed when they were uh, four, five, six years old. And coming into adulthood, where they have seen the same endocrinologist for the past 15 years, I assume and I can imagine that it's a little bit of a shock. And will I trust this doctor that is giving me all of this new information and is pushing me to do all these things on my own? And it, it, it is part of our job as physicians really to gain that uh, trust from our patients. Mm -hmm. No, it's a, it seems like a... It seems like difficult work, honestly. There's a lot going on there that's unsaid, and um, and it's very important to get accomplished. So then my last question before we move on is about seeing an adult who is diagnosed. Um, I can't – I'm trying to imagine – I'm a very simple person. I live my whole life, like, with numbers in front of me. I thought when I was 16, I'll be able to drive. When I'm 18, I'll be able to vote. When I'm 21, I'll be able to do this. Like, you know, and then – you start thinking about it more as you get older in terms of health. You're like, well, if I can make it through my 20s without this happening, I'll probably be okay. If I can make it through my 30s without this happening. So when people are diagnosed with something that is, you know, generally for the last 20 years been referred to as juvenile diabetes, it has to be incredibly shocking to them. And then they don't get the benefit, if it is a benefit, they don't get the benefit of being younger and a little more, a little more, I guess, flexible in their thinking when they're diagnosed. Like you're already set in your life. And at many ages, you could think I'm okay. Like I'm going to make it to the end. You know, um, I'm wondering what that's like in the, in the, in the very early moments and how you get them to a point of um, acceptance. I am so glad that you brought this up because type one diabetes, I, I don't use often the juvenile diabetes, I tend to like to, to sure. mention it, type 1 diabetes, can happen at any age, including people having type 2 and then transitioning to type 1 because they do develop antibodies and an autoimmune condition that is causing this attack on the pancreas. Mm -hmm. It can happen at any age. And sometimes as clinicians, we might miss that type 1 diabetes diagnosis, particularly if our patients are overweight or, or obese, you immediately think about type 2 diabetes or if they have a strong family history. But the truth is that we tend to diagnose quite a bit of type 1 in adulthood. My oldest patient diagnosed with type 1 new onset is a 79-year-old male. And so it, it is important to keep in our minds that anyone can develop type 1 
diabetes. I, I believe that with good education and really kind of diagnose, giving them the right diagnosis, it helps with that uh, transition. I will say many of my adult patients newly diagnosed with type 1, while it might be sort of a shock because you will expect as a new diagnosis of diabetes that you may start with oral medications and not injections, that is probably the biggest uh, shock to them. It They do tend to embrace the diagnosis if you were giving them that right education or providing that support, not only in terms of treating them and educating them about diabetes per se, but that emotional support and holding their hand throughout the process. How, how quickly do you go to a C-peptide test for an adult who looks like a type 2 but isn't acting like one? Uh, it Pretty much immediately. They seem to not be responding to oral hypoglycemic agents. They've been referred. They have a significantly elevated A1C. We have previously A1C, for example, that would be a great guidance. Um, just to give you an example, there was a patient uh, that I recently saw, and in March, A1C was completely normal. Mm-hmm. And four months later, it was 11. Wow. Well, that's type 1 until proven otherwise. Right, right, right. So getting some of that background history is very helpful also on their symptoms and how fast they progress, particularly if they have had regular yearly checkups. So, so now my next question is, and kind of getting onto our topic, when someone's diagnosed and English isn't their first language, but the world is built, I mean, the country's built around English, right? A lot of the world is actually. What what does that, I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the extra level of difficulty that's built on top of it. And and the reason I jumped so quickly to have you on the show when I when when I found out you were available is because, and I'll give you a tiny bit of background. This podcast has uh, seven hundred and I don't know seven hundred and thirty episodes. It's been going for eight years, and one of the things that I hear about very frequently from listeners is, you know, we have certain content about like pro tips for diabetes and defining terms and things like that. Can you please put those into Spanish? And the truth is, is that I can't afford to do that. I would need voice actors and it would be, and then the biggest problem becomes for me, even if I had that, say magically, you were like, oh, Scott, here, I have a pile of money. You take it now and hire two voice actors. I don't speak Spanish, so I can't QC anything that's being said. And so it almost feels like it's impossible to create that content for that audience. Um, I mean, gratefully, what what Dexcom has done has happened, but I'm just I'm trying to find I'm trying to decide how much of this that I don't see. What, what ends up happening to people when when language is also a barrier? It, so what ends up happening is that many people, number one, are not offered. Uh, technology. They might not be offered the education. And while we do have educational material in Spanish, many companies do provide Spanish uh, educational material. Not all clinicians or educators are aware that that is available. And it takes extra time. In my case, because Spanish is my native language, I can communicate with my patients very easily. I do believe that having a clinician that speaks the patient's language makes that barrier and that uh, communication a lot easier for the patients and their education is 
probably in a way better than if they you use a translator. And partly I've heard people translate before. And there is always a little bit of message that is lost yeah. because you're listening to someone speaking to you in English and then someone else in Spanish and your brain is going from one end to the other. Mm-hmm. When you're having the communication in your own language, it's always going to be easier. So that's a big barrier for yeah. sure. Every time I've had serious conversations with people about about taking content and turning it into Spanish content, they always say, look, there's going to be words or phrases that just don't translate, and then it's going to be on me to to explain it, or um, or that there are, and I'm, I'm going to use the wrong word here, but many different versions of the same language sometimes. So if you're from one, right, is that right? Like geor- geographically, you, you, there could be differences. Uh, if you think about, I have learned, um, I'm, I'm Puerto Rican, I have learned to speak in a way, and we say it kind of in, in a jokey kind of way, you know, Mexican, Ecuadorian, Colombian, because there's different slangs and there's different terminologies that are being used for the same Spanish word. We are speaking the same language, mm-hmm. but I need to understand who the person is in front of me what the terms that they use, because just very easy to give you a good example. An easy example that we find is for me, breakfast is desayuno, but for a lot of patients, uh, that will be almuerzo, which for me means lunch. Uh, and so I had to learn that terminology when I moved to the States and being able to communicate with my patients. Otherwise, they're going to be confused about the instructions that I'm providing. Right. So do you do you end up limiting information or sim- oversimplifying it? How do you, or do, or is there a way to to get the explanation out fully? Because when people come to me, um, either privately or as listeners to the podcast, very frequently, sometimes it doesn't matter if they've been newly diagnosed or if they've had diabetes for twenty years. They lack some of the most basic ideas about how to use insulin, and mm-hmm. it's it, it's baffling that they've seen a doctor three times a year for 20 years. And then I say, Hey, you should really pre-bullish your meals. And they act like they act like, I don't know, like somebody brought them tablets. You know what I mean? With uh, it was Moses that came to them with this amazing information. And I'm like, this is pretty basic stuff here. It's, it's bizarre that you've never heard this before. Um, So I don't know what, I don't know what happens. Like I'm always trying to imagine like what happens in that office that somebody could live 20 years with insulin and not understand that it doesn't begin to work right away. And that's so funny that you mentioned that. I've seen it happen many times. One, I think if someone has had diabetes for many years and they come to see me as a new patient, they've already been using insulin. I guess we tend to assume, even though in medicine, we always say, do not assume anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's like a rule for physicians. But we might tend to assume that they already know how to inject, and we might not review that. I like to review a lot of those things because I have seen it happen. But it, it you know, it, it puts in the, it's almost like a given. Why will I even review this that I know they're already doing? But we always should. That's sure. that's the truth. Yeah. And uh, when you're in a conversation with a patient, it's like going to school. If you're in an hour topic or a 45 minute topic, I probably only get 15% of what they're saying. Mm-hmm. And then I have to take notes for everything else so that I can review at home. 
if I am even taking notes. So I'm sure that during the visit, there is some information that we have discussed, but that they will not remember. Okay. So is the answer here? Well, first of all, let's, <laughs> I, I end up doing this a lot, doctor. I'm so sorry. We're 25 <laughs> minutes into it. Why don't we tell people why you came on the podcast first, and then I'll keep asking my questions. Um, hey, Scott, you have really good questions. No, okay, great. Still, though, you know, the title of the episode is going to be Dexcom G6 is in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> 25 minutes into it, I'm like, why doesn't this happen? Why couldn't this happen like this? Um, so what do you what are you here to share with us? So, yes, um, as of uh, July 27th, Dexcom G6 is now available, thankfully, for our Spanish-speaking patients. The patients, it's very easy. Pretty much they can download the Dexcom G6 app, the newest version, and they can go into their language, the preferred language, and switch that to Spanish if it's already not already set to Spanish. And that will immediately turn the app into Spanish. Uh, if you have not had the opportunity to use it, Dexcom has done a really nice job in changing all of those alerts that we're familiar with, with the Dexcom G6 to Spanish. Okay. Um, and so it makes it really easy for them. And it's a great opportunity to start breaking that barrier in terms of health equities, because many of our Hispanic populations and minorities in general do not tend to have access to diabetes technology. And partly, I will say, if we as clinicians know that there's nothing available that will assist our patients in a way that they can understand it, are we going to even offer it to our patients? So now we really have no excuse for those patients that speak Spanish. Now we can offer uh, technology that will be very helpful to them in terms of managing their diabetes, for us to help them educate on their diabetes management as well. So two questions. So there's been times for you as a doctor where you've thought, I'd like to give this person a Dexcom, but they don't know enough English to make sense of it. Correct. That, that happens. And, and, okay. And that happens. And we do have occasionally um, biases. Not that we intentionally do it, right? But uh, we might be biased if we see a patient, for example, I have to give you a great example. I have learned over time that many of my Hispanic patients, the family member is always waiting in the waiting area. Mm -hmm. And they keep the family member keeps the phone. So in a way, I kind of assume that my patient may not have a phone. So I've learned now to always ask and to use the right terminology. For example, what you call a smartphone that's not a familiar phrase for many. If you call it a cell phone, believe it or not, that might not be a familiar phrase. And I'm talking about saying it in Spanish right. uh, to the patient. But if you say just plain phone, that works. And so from now on, I always ask if you have a phone with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so those are like little tips and tricks that you learn uh, with clinical practice. Okay. But it's important to always ask. Yeah. So, doctor, so simply speaking, the Dexcom G6 app that the user uses, the, the person with diabetes, the app that's on their phone, there's just an update to the app that now gives you the ability to switch the language. There's not like a separate Spanish app. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. There's no separate Spanish app that makes it easier also for the clinicians whenever we're asking our patients to download the app into their phone. Mm -hmm because we don't have to direct patients to different apps. 
Oh, that's amazing. Hey, are, did you want to, while you were here, ask all the other device manufacturers to do the same thing? Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> What's the breakdown in the United States? I mean, how many Hispanic people are there versus, I mean, people who, gen look at me, I don't know how to talk about this. People who probably don't speak English as their first language. Like, what's the percentage? Um, I actually don't know that exact percentage. Okay. What I can tell you is that there's close to 12% uh, Hispanics do have diabetes. Yeah. And that's a pretty large number. Not only that, is that us Hispanics, we have a 50% chance of developing diabetes in the future. That's a huge percentage. Wow. Uh, and so it is very important that we educate, that we not only try to educate ourselves, but that in general, our communities provide education for our patients. Health literacy is a big barrier to diabetes care. Diabetes technology literacy is a big barrier. Oftentimes, our patients believe that a continuous glucose monitor might be a device that is delivering medication rather than reading glucoses. So mm. we need to be able to discuss and answer all those questions and be able to bring up that conversation and explain to our patients what technologies are available to them mm. and what it means. Because I assure you, I've mentioned it many times to our patients about continuous glucose monitor and what it means. And they still, at the end of that conversation, believe that the device will give them some sort of medication. It, it's reinforcing the concept and educating our patients. So, you know, it's interesting. My daughter was at a party recently and her Omnipod was visible. And a woman came up to her, she didn't know her, and she kind of looks at my daughter, my daughter's 18, and she looks at her very seriously, and she says, do you have a nicotine addiction? And my oh, <laughs> and my daughter was like, what? And she points to the pod, and my daughter goes, no, I, I don't have a nicotine addiction. And then the woman gets very sullen and says, oh, I'm so sorry, are, are you going through cancer treatment? And my daughter's only knows about that because my mom has recently uh, won a battle with cancer, and after her chemo they would give her this medication that actually is contained in, they don't call it an Omnipod, but it's literally the same exact thing and it's used in different medical. Mm -hmm. and my, my daughter's like, no, and at least she knew about that. She's like, I am a type one diabetic, there's insulin in this. And it turns out the woman she was speaking to was a nurse and her, th it, and her first two guesses had nothing to do with diabetes. So now you're just talking about regular people who don't have any interactions with this and you expect them to know what these things do. I'll tell you that I think a large part of my job sometimes is just explaining, like I have a, um, I have about a 47, maybe 50 um, episode series that I just called Defining Diabetes. And we just take every word that people run into with their diabetes and explain them very simply because I was, I was getting notes from people that would say, hey, I didn't realize that I was doing MDI. I had been like injecting insulin for five years. I didn't know anybody called it MDI. And so then when you hear people talking about it, even if you're an English speaker and you're listening to the, the direction in English, as soon as you get to a term you don't know, it's sort of like a, it's a blank spot in the conversation for you and you can't fill it in. And then the stuff that comes next doesn't make as much sense, et cetera. So I think this is all really wonderful. Um, I really yeah. do. I hope the other people listening uh, think the same because I have been... I've tried so hard over the years to get somebody to take this seriously, but I'm just not the right person apparently to get them to take it seriously. But there are a lot of people out there that could benefit from good information and you just need to deliver it to them in a way they can understand. So this is wonderful.
Thank you. Yeah, simple is always better. Uh, and sometimes reinforcing, if there's mispronouncing, for example, A1C, always kind of correcting them and what it means. Uh, I One of the things that I would like to say, because many patients, they don't like to prick their fingers, right? And the continuous glucose monitor provides that opportunity where they don't need to prick their finger uh, when they're on the G6. Uh, but the, the the part of the story on someone that has diabetes that helps the clinicians uh, adjust their medication is really those glucose readings and that glucose trend. Mm-hmm. One finger stick a day, as you know, is not enough information. And it's just one second of the day versus when you have a whole day of information. But one thing that I like to say is oftentimes we look at A1Cs and A1Cs are not perfect tests. A1C can give us an average of what the sugar has been in the past three months, but it doesn't speak to what happens when you exercise or what happens when it's too hot outside or when you're under stress or uh, when you eat the same meal and you have different results. What happened that particular day and how could I adjust my medications based on that? And sometimes the A1C might look really pretty, but when you look at the sugars, they're all sure. significantly elevated. Right. And so for not, not everybody, the A1C is the right tool to monitor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I would like to mention that because there is an importance on glucose readings. Yeah, no, and, and getting people to understand standard deviation, time and range, those things are are such a big deal. And you're, I mean, obviously you're right. Like, you know, a lot of low blood sugars and a lot of high blood sugars could average out and look like a, a reasonable A1C. And yes. with, and without this information, um, it's just, it's difficult to, it's difficult to put your finger on what's happening sometimes. Mm-hmm. So um, is there anything else that I haven't, is there anything I haven't asked you about that I should have? Um. Not. I just think that in general, I'll take the opportunity Mm -hmm. for everyone out there uh, to help us change the barriers in terms of diabetes access to our minority friends. If you know that you have heard this podcast and you have a family member, if you have a friend that they have a type 1 or type 2 diabetes on insulin, and they do not have technology available to them, let's educate those people so that they could bring it up to their clinicians. And perhaps they might get on a medication. At the end of the day, we want to achieve good diabetes control to prevent complications. And we want that to be equal throughout all of the ethnic groups. Yeah, I I agree. And I'll tell you what, while we're doing this, anyone who wants to sponsor the translation of some of my episodes to help people, I- I'm in. As long as you're not doing something really crazy, <laughs> as long as you're not like some really strange company, I- I'm-, I'm up for it. I really, I really hope someone sees the value in that and steps forward one day. Um, so I-, I really appreciate you doing this. Hey, can I ask you something silly? And if it's weird, you'll tell me. But sure. <laughs> for, social me- for social media, so I can get Spanish-speaking people to the, the episode can you, in Spanish, give me that the G6 is available now? Like, whatever your explanation would be, I don't, I'm not, I don't want to direct you to what to say, but could you give me a soundbite? For sure. El, el medidor continuo de glucosa Dexcom G6 
está disponible ahora en español en la aplicación Textcom G6, en, tanto en el iPhone como en el Android. Por favor, descarguenlo y cambien su idioma a español. Doctor, do you know I took three years of French in high school and all I know is nuf means nine. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I felt like I heard iPhone and Android and, and glucosa, which I've heard a number of times. And I was like, I don't know what you're saying. So tell me what you said just for, for edification. Sure. I said that the Dexcom G6 is a continuous glucose monitor that is now available in Spanish to please, uh, for those that have it, uh, Dexcom G6, to download the app either on iPhone or Android in Spanish and change the language to Spanish so mm -hmm. that, you know, basically that they can use it. Thank you so much. I really do I appreciate this. I, I appreciate this so very much. Um, I, I hope you have a terrific day and, and I appreciate you taking the time. Same to you, Scott. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, I want to thank Dr. Harbison for coming on and remind you that if you're a Spanish-speaking person, it would probably be easier to see your Dexcom G6 in Spanish. All you need is the latest version of the Dexcom G6 app and then change the settings to Spanish. Thanks also to the InPen from Medtronic Diabetes for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. And don't forget to go to InPenToday.com to learn more. Want to see me speak in Orlando, Florida, or just want to find out more about a great organization? touchedbytype1.org. Don't forget about the T1D Exchange survey, t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. Takes fewer than 10 minutes.